is It's the Owl Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Deus Ex Dao podcast, a place where some of the most progressive and innovative builders, thought leaders, and traders in the crypto space come together to discuss all areas of the crypto industry. Whether you're into DeFi, Layer 1s, Layer 2s, NFTs, or anything in between, we've got you covered. And as a reminder, nothing said on this podcast should be construed as financial advice or as a solicitation to buy or sell any digital asset or security. The comments, views, and opinions expressed by the hosts or guests on the podcast are their own. As always, you'll need to do your own research. Now, with that out of the way, let's get to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our newest episode. Um, today, my co-host is Brucey, and we are excited to welcome the iPor team, which are Darren and Dimitar. Uh, hey, guys. Um, yeah, and we will dive into uh, a different topic today, which are interest rate swaps and IPOR index. So excited to have you guys. Welcome. Welcome. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. Thanks for hosting us, guys. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Great. We're, we're happy to have you. Uh, for the listener, so Deus Ex Dao actually has had the opportunity to work with iPOR, um, helping them with their marketing, and uh, we have already gotten into strategy conversations. And so um, we thought this podcast would be a great opportunity to help clarify what is at the outset perhaps a little bit of a difficult topic. Um, and uh, Darren and Dimitar, they have deep subject matter expertise and are also very passionate, so we found. Um, and we hope to be able to share some of that with you. So as a first step, I think it would be great, you know, maybe if um, Darren and Dimitar, you guys can just introduce yourselves and we can move on to uh, the, the product and the project, um, maybe first from a top level and then the, uh, the intricacies. So I will begin and pass the mic to Darren. Do you want to uh, tell the crowd about your background and how you got here? Yeah, sure. Well, um, so my name is Darren Kemis. I'm co-founder and CEO of iPor Labs. Uh, very, let's say, a very long and interesting route to get here. Uh, that takes us, uh, you know, all over the world, all over the crypto universe. But it really converges on the iPor Labs mission. So I've been building in crypto markets actually for the last 11 years. I started in 2011, um, ran BizDev for one of the first crypto exchanges in the world. Let's just say that the crypto verse is much is very different from back then. Um, but I've had the opportunity to, uh, you know, build out brokerages, cross-border payments, uh, advise different layer ones and other protocols, work on some security token infrastructure, and all of that story has led us here. So iPOR is really uh, its mission is to be the base of the DeFi credit markets, and I guess we can jump into that a little bit later. And then Demeter, I know from uh, actually 2018, uh, we were both in Shanghai at the time, but we ended up meeting in Frankfurt. So maybe Demeter, you can give a little bit of the uh, context there. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I I have not been in the in the markets as, as long as as long as Darren, I, I just entered like in 2015. So a lot, a lot later. Uh, but, 
Yeah, first, uh, Dimitar, I'm the co-founder of Hypecore and the chief of strategy. Uh, so I actually started from the from the banking side. Yes, I was I started my career in crypto, working in an investment bank, and I was building a product, a crypto product for that investment bank uh, back in 2016. Uh, very soon, it became apparent that building crypto uh, platforms with all of the regulatory red tape around it is is just not going to cut it for me. I I had like much more curiosity. Uh, and I was had much much bigger ambitions of what I want to build in crypto. So I started from re really early 2016. I was already building a centralized and uh, centra centralized spot and derivatives exchanges. And since 2017, actually, since I first uh, read the Bancor paper, uh, I'm I'm all into DeFi. Yes. So very very early. 2018, I was already writing papers on, back then uh, it was called transaction fee mining. Uh, now in 2020, people call it liquidity mining, but more or less the same thing, just for different, uh, one is for centralized entities, the other one for the centralized entities. And for the for the three years before we, uh, we actually start with IPOR, uh, I was working as managing director of JRR Group. Uh, so one of the very big VCs, uh, uh, in in China back then, one of the angel investors of Binance, and yeah, uh, when when DeFi summer came in 2020, uh, so yeah, uh, the story about Frankfurt and how we met with with Darren in 2018. I went to that conference in in Frankfurt, and and Darren was one of the panelists, and and I remember they were they were speaking about like security tokens and regulations, and me. I, I exited the, the banking sector, yes, in order to build real crypto. Uh, and, and they, they sit there and they, they speak how, how big security tokens are going to be and how regulation is so important in our space. And I just could not uh, hold myself. I, I started really trashing on the panel. Sadly, <laughs> Darren was on that panel, but that's really how, how we met. Uh, so. Two years later, basically, when, when DeFi Summer really started, me and Darren got together. We started discussing what we see, uh, like the innovation that we see in the space, uh, all of the protocols that are being built, the composability that is now uh, available uh, on, on Ethereum. And yeah, we started talking and then came to the conclusion that, you know, if DeFi is to grow, there are going to be specific things that that should be there as, as infrastructure, mm -hmm. as financial infrastructure. And, and that's how uh, basically we started Typeport. I love it. Uh, but what is clear, or at least has been to us in getting to know you guys is um, how much traditional finance, and I guess also business experience you have, and that you are bringing to this market, uh, also with some deep blockchain understanding. Um, so, Maybe it's a, a next step. Could you guys explain? So what is what is the vision for IPOR and what are the, the types of tools that you're providing? Okay, so maybe I can go back to, you know, when, when Dimitri and I were breaking down, you know, DeFi, we're doing a deep dive and saying what's, um, you know, what, what are the fundamentals here? You know, everything is nice, interesting. You have these casino-like interfaces that have this number go up. You have the yield farming. There's definitely something here, but you know what? What 
if we're going to look at this and say, you know, it's really useful, you know, like say five years, 10 years down the road, you know, what are the fundamentals and what are the required things? So, you know, we're looking at uh, DeFi TVL really being split 50-50 between the credit markets and the, uh, you know, and in the exchanges. And there's some at least fundamental value on the exchanges. You get traded volume. Uh, you have some, uh, you know, percentage that's charged. And maybe you have some token buyback mechanism, which has some, uh, you, you can model out, let's say, uh, you know, what's the fundamentals of, of sushi. For example, what's the token emission rate? What's the what's the buyback and and make actually a, a financial model? Uh, on the credit side, it's quite simple. You have borrowers that pay lenders, and you know there's some fundamental fundamental activity. So actually, recently I caught up with one of our investors in Token Twenty Forty Nine in Singapore, and he said, you know, I have I pitch you guys everywhere, but I don't know how to pitch you. And I said, okay. And he's like, but let me let, let me give you a point, you know, how, I, how I'm pitching you to traditional finance guys. So, you know, everyone in crypto is crazy about exotic derivatives, you know, especially the perpetual swap, you know, which is uh, actually a very short uh, history. You know, it was invented by Arthur Hayes of BitMEX because you had the traders that actually didn't understand that futures expire. So he had to actually create uh, an instrument that is now one of the most widely traded crypto instruments because of actual ignorance of the users. And so that's a pretty fascinating story in and of itself. But in crypto, we're crazy about the exotics, but you know, the traditional, the very vanilla derivatives are the ones that are the largest markets in the world, right? These money markets are the largest markets in the world. And if crypto and DeFi is actually going to mature, uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of value actually accrue to this. And uh, for example, we'll see a growth of the fixed income market. And this ties really well into the conversation that we're having in 2020, like the end of, let's say, November, December 2020. So, okay. Everyone's going to want to be DYDX, which we, you know, we know DYDX right now leading the way or GMX. Everyone's going to be wanting want to build a decentralized version of, of Binance or FTX or, 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 um, or BitMEX, you know, on the, on the perpetual futures on assets. Really speculative, but not necessarily so interesting for us, you know, and maybe the greenfield opportunities in the credit markets. So it was about that time we were looking at, you know, kind of what are the, uh, what are the fundamentals of the credit markets? This was one year before you know, kind of the wind down of the LIBOR. And, uh, you know, from my history um, uh, in, in actually risk management running exchanges, you know, the, the LIBOR is a, is a really fundamental part of the credit markets. And we're looking at, okay, so what are, what are the fundamentals? What are some of the risks in unwinding the LIBOR? How can we actually, uh, you know, let's say, take this benchmark rate that was being uh, manipulated by traders inside of banks for their own profit uh, how can we actually apply the blockchain mechanisms, which give you transparency, immutability, auditability, and also real-time rates? And then, you know, how can we design this now, take the best of TradFi and put it into DeFi? And then from that, how can we build, you know, a set of really useful instruments, such as, you know, the, the suite of interest rate derivatives, you know, starting with the interest rate swap that's now live on, on mainnet on Ethereum and actually create this base stabilizing factor, the stabilizing layer, you know, of the DeFi credit markets. And also remember, you know, at that time you had uh, this crazy rate volatility where, you know, the Aave and compound rates, you know, you wake up and they might be at 3% and then at lunchtime they're sitting at 30%. 
back down to 10 and then up to 40. So you have this insane rate volatility, which makes it interesting for speculators, not really useful for your average person, especially no risk management tools for your fixed income participants. And this is Greenfield Opportunity. Yeah, so maybe we can go a little bit more into the index first. So maybe could you describe like the index and then uh, what products you have built on top and what you want to build on top and also why why the index is important. Okay, so going to the index, you know, um, so the, the LIBOR, you know, was uh, the most important number in finance. It's essentially uh, uh, interbank, is, it's the London interbank offered rate. It's the, the rate on top of the central banking rate, which is supposed to provide, um, let's say, a, a fair market alternative to central bank policy. Right. And this is used to structure a number of instruments. I think something like 300 trillion worth of deals, derivatives, credit instruments. And effectively, in traditional finance, that number has been taken over by the SOFOR, which is an overnight financing rate or the coming from the repo markets. Right. But you, you effectively get a, a quote, let's say, when you, um, you know, when you take a mortgage, they say, OK, do you want a variable rate or do you want a fixed rate for your mortgage? And that rate is effectively quoted off the SOFOR plus some uh, some spread. You know, you might take the SOFOR plus, you know, 200 bips or 2%. And that is the, the, the rate dynamic. So essentially you have the bank, which is quoting this index rate, and they're fixing some spread on top of that. And for the LIBOR, you have it, you know, you have a LIBOR, you have the, you know, the spot rate, the one month rate, the three month rate, you know, extending out, you know, to the one year rate. And this is, uh, you know, effectively the yield curve, you know, what this, uh, what this uh, free market debt should be worth in the future. And this is something that's actually lacking, you know, inside of DeFi. Uh, you can see that in, you know, right now we are, we're in a very low rate environment inside of DeFi where you can actually borrow cheaply in DeFi and actually lend it on, on traditional finance. Uh, you know, we just released an article last week where you can actually borrow cheap USDC and lend it in short term treasuries and, and, and uh, you know, keep the, uh, you know, the spread on this basis trade. And that's kind of crazy, uh, let's say, yield inversion. Well, um, what's interesting actually about that, Darren, is I, I think because we do not have that, you're exposed to the volatility of the individual money markets, right? So Aave and Compound and many more that will come into the future. Um, but I think the fact that there is uh, something like this in traditional finance that, like you said, is uh, the benchmark upon which spreads are fixed, right? So you may, uh, a business loan may be based on so for plus 2% or right a mortgage, maybe uh, your LIBOR plus three, or uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know the spreads, but um, just hypothesizing. Um, and it already seems that the discrepancy between DeFi and TradFi, which we can uh, get into later, you know, like the rate difference, it's already a function of all that, that key infrastructure missing. Um, so, I think you guys have a really big vision with that, right? And the creation of that index and also how that should be a public good. Um, and so I think it would be helpful for the audience to understand uh, what you um, view as the benefits for that being in place. You know, like how can apps integrate with that index, for example, and how will it improve uh, what is DeFi and the related economics? 
Yeah, so the IPOR rate, uh, you know, as, a, as you mentioned, it is a public good, right? So, uh, you know, as the, the LIBOR, the SOFOR is good for structuring deals, the IPOR rate, you know, can do the same. So first of all, you know, the, the, the IPOR rate exists from a transparency perspective so that all market participants can see, you know, where, you know, their, their, their debt terms, you know, uh, essentially benchmark against, right? So am I getting a good deal? Am I getting a bad deal? And that's just the transparency function. The other thing is it's a data point that lives over time that you can use, you know, again, like you said, uh, you know, quoting a business loan, at the uh, IPOR plus, uh, you know, whatever percent. Well, if you put that in the smart contract world and it's actually printed to an Oracle smart contract that lives forever, right? So if we think of what's the value of this IPOR index actually printed on chain, you can spin up a number of different contracts that actually reference that in their pricing. So for example, the, the first instrument on chain that references the IPOR uh, index is the IPOR interest rate swap. And so it's a one month, you know, peer to pool cancelable swap, but that's just the first instrument that's actually referencing the IPOR. So this IPOR can be used to spin up a new money market, right? If someone doesn't want to create their own dynamics, uh, you know, instead of having this uh, utilization plus, uh, plus bonding curve, they can just quote the IPOR index and affix some basis spread for the borrowers and the lenders. Uh, in the future, you can have, a, a, let's say, a decentralized bank that is essentially quoting the IPOR index, uh, one of the uh, the longer-term rates, and it's using uh, these interest rate derivatives to offer a longer-term loan, uh, whether it be for buying a car or, let's say, you know, a 30-year mortgage to, uh, you know, to buy a house. So, actually, for DeFi to be useful, we have to extend the durations of these contracts. We have to have term structure. We have to... Uh, you know, extend the tenors of these loans uh, and create some loan structure. And we're really starting from day one. This is why IPOR, for example, is starting from a spot index and actually moving out to build the one month index to three months, six months, right? It's it's really extending the duration that we can, um, you know, forecast our, you know, our debt cost or our return on, uh, you know, on uh, on lending or the fixed income. Really, that that's really interesting. I want to ask a quick question about that, and then I think we should move into the the swaps themselves. Um, but why is these uh, these longer durations? Why is that important for institutions, right? Because in in tradfi, I think a lot of the trading happens around. Okay, you lock in a rate for three months or twelve or etc. Um, how do you guys see that kind of uh, increasing the appeal of DeFi? Yeah, DeFi is really impatient, you know, uh, I would say that the crypto space in general is impatient, very speculative and very innovative, but it has to mature, right? So essentially you have a lot of, uh, you know, arbitrage traders that are trading even, uh, uh, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, and they're trading the yield curve. They're trading the discrepancies between the forward curve for these instruments and the mispricing between markets, right? So that yield curve on, uh, you know, the different assets is, is a major trading strategy. Right. Uh, for the debt markets to grow, we have to have this yield curve in in the credit markets. Right. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, both a, a function of, you know, market maturity, uh, it, having some term structure where you have people essentially locking up deposits for a fixed time at a fixed rate. And it also comes from these interest rate derivative contracts, which actually allow you to 
you know, either take a, a you know, a liquid uh, money market borrow, let's say borrowing from Aave or borrowing from Compound and taking a pay fixed contract, which creates essentially, you know, a, a fixed rate, a fixed rate loan. And as the, uh, uh, you know, as the duration of these different iPort derivatives extends, then you can actually effectively create a fixed rate loan, you know, further and further into the future. And that builds utility, let's call it, let's say one month at a time, you know, extending the yield curve one month at a time, which actually makes it useful for a larger set of players. Uh, I mean, we're talking about, a, you know, in traditional fixed income, we're talking about the trillions of dollars, not the millions of dollars or, you know, the low billions that we have in, in DeFi. So, you know, this capital is not, it's not very short, it's not short-sighted. It's looking at very long terms, you know. So we, I mean, this is really a big missing piece. Yeah, let's dive into like the, the product you're offering right now in, in a second. First, like one question beforehand, because I think it would help the audience as well. Like, how do you calculate the IPOR index right now? And how could it change over time? Like, what, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so the IPOR index right now, it's actually a composite rate between Aave and Compound. The reason that those were the selection criteria was because they have the longest history, which means, of course, they've, uh, the, many exploits have been attempted and they've been tried and true so far. Uh, they have the highest liquidity and the index is volume weighted. So it's actually cutting the mid-market rate between the lending rate and the borrowing rate. So instead of, like, say, the LIBOR, which is the, the uh, London Interbank offered rate, you, the IPOR is more of a mid-market rate, and that's just because of the smart con uh, the, the construction of the smart contracts of Aave and Compound. But we understand that DeFi is this very rapidly evolving thing that's extremely liquid and extremely uh, fluid. So, for example, uh, you know, tracking stable coins that go across chain, tracking the rise and fall of, of TVL and, and, and market activity could be very interesting for the, for the IPOR. Why? Because if we look at something like the LIBOR, the 18 London banks that comprise the, the LIBOR, they're not going to change over time. Uh, I mean, if they change, it's going to be over a number of years. But the innovation happens so quick in DeFi that, you know, maybe uh, money market X will rise and, it, and maybe it, it just flies right past the other two. Uh, in that case, you know, what's the process for this essentially protocol as a proxy for a financial institution to be included into the IPOR weighting? Well, we think this is a very interesting form and, and a necessary form of decentralized governance, right? And so that is a huge, I mean, this is something huge to think about in terms of the future of the IPOR, that decentralized governance is at its core. Uh, because it's really the community that owns this rate and then will own it into the future. So there will be important decisions such as, you know, what protocols comprise, uh, you know, the, the IPOR index. Uh, how does, uh, you know, a protocol get included? How does the protocol get excluded in case of, for example, a hack? Uh, how does the IPOR go cross-chain? How does it ingest rates from other chains? How does it get printed on these other chains? How is a new IPOR index spun up? For example, right now there's an IPOR index uh, or a spot index for USDC, USDT, and DAI. Uh, the IPOR Labs team will be spinning up an IPOR ETH index, uh, and that should be coming soon. But for example, again, let's say uh, you know stablecoin Y starts um, gaining in popularity, it starts uh, getting used on the money markets. 
who makes the decision, uh, you know, about when a new IPOR index is spun up for that. What are the requirements? What are the liquidity requirements? And so this, again, is uh, something that's very interesting for decentralized governance. And it's actually a perfect fit for, uh, you know, uh, the LIBOR had a history of manipulation, and this is, this is why it was discontinued. Uh, in the case of the, of the IPOR, we leverage the beautiful, uh, you know, co smart contract mechanism. So you don't have to query uh, a bank and ask for self-reporting, you know, the smart contracts ask the smart contracts. Uh, but, you know, where does this go in the future? I mean, this is a very, very beautiful example of decentralized governance and how, you know, the DeFi co community can really come together and, 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 and uh, you know, really push to keep this uh, as the risk-free rate in, in DeFi as this, um, let's say, pure mechanism uh, that can reflect and uh, reflect a guide and provide some stability and transparency for the DeFi credit markets. Yeah, as you said, like you, you also call it the, the heartbeat of DeFi. So it's like a backbone for a lot of derivatives to build upon. So I think it completely makes sense here to have decentralized governance and a transparent system. Um, so maybe let's dive into the interest rate swaps. So uh, I heard about the IPOR index. How can I use it? Like maybe first as a trader, but also as an LP. Like what what can I do with it? So maybe maybe first to explain a little bit, like what is what is an interest rate swap? And I mean the vanilla interest rate swap actually is the most used instrument in the world. Yes, by with hundreds of trillions of dollars uh, per year of volume on just pure vanilla interest rate swaps. And what, what this is, is basically two parties meet and they exchange fixed rate for floating rate. Yes, and to make it like very easy to understand, let's say I come to you and I tell you, hey, Cap, uh, I want to pay you 2%. Uh, I, I want to pay you 2% uh, rate and I want to receive whatever the IPOR rate is going to be over the next one month. And let's say that at this point, over the next one month, the average IPOR rate is, or variable rate, let's call it in, the, in this scenario, is 3%. So we basically exchange that cash flow, yes? I pay you, we, we basically in advance say what the notional uh, amount of our trade is going to be, let's say $10 million. And then I pay you 2% on $10 million and you pay me 3% on, on $10 million. So I, I basically make 1% on, on $10 million. And, and, and that's it. It's a, it's a very simple instrument. And then if you, if you want to put this to practice is let's say I go and I borrow $1 million on Aave. And right now the, the, my borrowing cost is uh, 3%. And I'm afraid that this cost might increase. Let's say Ethereum starts going up tomorrow and there is a lot of demand for speculation and people are borrowing stables in order to leverage up on Ethereum. Uh, so if I want to fix that 3% rate, which is on Aave with an interest rate swap, I would just go and say, I want to be paying fixed and I want to be receiving floating. And I will have that interest rate swap opened on IPOR for $1 million and what this does is that if the rates go up, let's say that the rate from 3% goes to 5%, now I'm going to be paying a lot more money on my borrow uh, on Aave 
because I'm going to be paying 2% more, but this is going to be offset by the interest rate swap that I have on I4 using a derivative. So at the end, like the money that I win from the interest rate swap, I'm going to be able to cover uh, the increased cost of borrow uh, on top of the credit markets. And, and that's it. I, I basically achieved fixed rate of, of borrowing. And actually, this was one of the this was one of the main reasons why we started with the first in instrument being uh, interest rate swap, because by construction of the of the most popular credit markets in in DeFi right now, they are inherently variable. They 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 cannot have stable rates. Yes, uh, or I mean. You can you can try to take a stable rate, but they're going to quote you like five or six percent uh, more. And this is because uh, those credit markets they are not optimized for pricing of of borrowing demand, but they are optimized for liquidity. Yes, because there are no term structures on those on those uh, borrowings and lendings. So the protocol has to ensure that at any point in time, depositors will be able to withdraw their money. Yes. So there is a lot of, of talk about like, oh, why are people uh, not using uh, stable rates on those credit markets? Well, they're expensive and they're expensive because like we said, the protocol just needs to ensure liquidity, not the best price. Uh, so I just, this is really- Jimmy, just, just hopping in, but like that is, that's a really interesting observation um, that, that there is, there's like, there are almost no fixed loans in DeFi, right? It only exists really uh, when, when you go to under collateralized lending or you pay a massive markup. I, I, I just wanted to echo that point because uh, I think it's quite interesting that that doesn't exist yet. And it echoes the point, right? That they're, it's very hard to lock in a long-term rate. Yeah, that and and that's because almost every fixed uh, rate protocol that just that that tries to come out, uh, they are somehow going to be dependent on the liquidity that comes from those variable credit markets, the big ones, yes, the Aves and 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 the compounds. So and they do not know how how much that debt is going to cost in the future. Yes, and this brings us back to the point of Darren of like in DeFi we don't have any idea. I, how much that debt costs six months from now or one year from now. Yes. So like creating any types of, of, of structured products without an yield curve is an almost impossible task, even for the most experienced and advanced uh, fixed rate uh, traders in the, in the world, you know? So a question about these swaps, because one thing that uh, as someone who doesn't have experience trading interest rate swaps um, has appeared to me is that with a very small amount of margin, you can trade a very large notional amount, right? So if I if I want to borrow and basically hedge that, uh, you know, let's say I borrow 10K, well, then hedging that on, on IPOR actually isn't that expensive and I don't need that much collateral. Um, could you guys kind of explain how that leverage function works and also why the leverage you take on can be much larger because it is less risky. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe, maybe I can go here. So to be honest, originally, uh, we did not want to call it leverage because effectively like calling it leverage is, is, is going to have like the connotation that you are somehow increasing your risk because that's what happens in, in, in perps, yes. When you increase your leverage, you increase your, your risk. Uh, but like when we talk about interest rate swaps, it's like it's you're just putting like a collateral. 
Yes, and this is the same in, in traditional finance. Yes, like in traditional finance, when you open an interest rate swap with another counterparty, uh, by law even, you have to post some collateral. And that collateral just sits there to be able to cover the different that cash flow that is accruing between the two parties. And maybe that cash flow is not even going to ever be used. You know, maybe they're just going to 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 end up on on break even. Uh, but how an interest rate swap works is that, like, unlike a perpetual or an option, where let's say I I purchase from you the option to be able to purchase Ethereum at one thousand three hundred dollars after one month. Yes, and then two days before that option expire, Ethereum goes to two thousand five hundred, and my my option is now a lot in the money. Yes, and then I close my option, my option expires, I'm very in the money. You as the option writer, you basically are taking a massive loss because you have underwrite that option for me. I'm making massive profits. Two days later, the price of Ethereum goes back down to one thousand five hundred or one thousand three hundred. And that's it. No, we just we just gamble between each other. I won in that situation, and 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 that's it. And you live uh, wrecked. Uh, with with interest rate swaps, uh, it's like when we when we start, you basically depending on what you perceive that the rate is going to be over an X period of time, you basically quote me a spread, and you tell me, okay. Uh, I'm I'm open to to do that interest rate swap with you, but you are going to pay me 0.3% uh, higher than the current rate is, and then our cash flow starts starts accruing. Now the interest rate tomorrow can go down, can go up to 10. Yes, no position is going to be liquidated because interest rate swaps accrue PNL through time. It's it's not a, like a spot exchange, a spot event, or a future event where you're going to be liquidated because you run out of margin. So let's say tomorrow that rate spikes to ten, the next day it goes down to normal. We continue with our with our interest rate swap for the rest of the month, and then at the end when I close my position, we just say, okay, let's see what the average rate was, how much I promised to pay you, how much how much is the average and, and let's exchange that cash flow. So the collateral that is being put there is simply something that we need to do because it is not efficient to add collateral on top of Ethereum. Yes, so, and, and because interest rate swaps are so capital efficient and they require so little money, they are a very useful tool for everybody that want to basically, let's say, uh, catch their exposure, they want to fix their rates, even if you just want to speculate on the rates, it's, it's still an amazing tool. Yes, because it requires such a small amount of, of collateral in, or, in order to open a very big notional interest rate swap. Qu question on that, and obviously not financial advice, but let's just say I had a bunch of ETH and I am borrowing 10K in USDC. Let's just hypothesize that, right? Um, is, is there a particular amount of leverage that you would advise that I use to put on an interest rate swap to hedge that? You know, what do you think is like safe? Or like, is it is advisable? If you, if you just want to be able to put on that hedge, you know, and not have to worry about any liquidation risk and still somewhat do that at, at a level of spread that's appealing. Yeah, so if you if you ask any traditional trader that is in, in, in fixed income, yes, he's going to tell you, I'm going to take as much leverage as you allow me to. Yes, because like capital efficiency here is just 
so important. And like we said, like increasing the leverage does not increase your risk. So in this situation, let's say that you want to you want to use this as a, as a hedging tool for your borrow. Yes. So you already have a notional amount in mind. Yes, because you want to protect ten thousand dollars worth of notional to not increase to not so because that's your borrowed amount. Yes, if it's yeah. one million, then it's one million. So by increasing the leverage, you're just reducing the amount of collateral that you're going to put. And and this for like I would say not financial advice, but for example, if I'm to open an interest rate swap, uh, I'm going to use the maximal uh, available leverage because why wouldn't I? The only way that this interest rate swap can get, let's say, liquidated because I have too little collateral is if I open that swap and on the next day, the rates increase three times and they stay like that for a month. Yes, and then I'll, I'll probably run out of collateral. But I mean, for, for the people that are that are using those, you know, 500 to 1000 uh, leverage is, is basically still considered very safe, especially in, in today's interest rates. Yes. If that was two years so, ago. It's so interesting. Sorry to interrupt you. It's so interesting because yeah. it is absolutely a contrast to what we're used to in perps and also the the, the time components of the rolling PL also is something I think is very much worth emphasizing, right? Like if it's not as if you're going to be liquidated in a day because the rates, you know, even if they move or even if they double or triple, you're going to see that reflected in, in the PL and you can you can still adjust. Um, so I, I think those are very interesting points. Thanks for uh, for sort of walking us through that. So, so here, let me give you some industry insight that I'm pretty sure that that many people do not realize about about perps. Yes, what what happens when you open a hundred x leverage on perps is that actually because of how those perpetual contracts are being constructed, you are only going to participate in fifty percent of the price movement. So let's say. If you open that on 1,500 and you open uh, a long, and let's say at uh, 1,400, you're supposed to be liquidated. But because of how perpetuals are working, instead of 1,400, you're going to get liquidated at 1,450. So that means that you made the bet, but now you actually lose only at 50% of the downside instead of the liquidation, which should happen at 100%. And this is the other big difference, right? For example, interest rate swaps, they can be closed even hours or even days after the swap have already expired. And it's still going to cost a very small amount of difference as, as opposed to interest rate swap that if it's not closed right now, right at this price, then the underwriter, the exchange uh, is basically risking uh, defaulting, yes, because they cannot un unwind those those perpetuals, uh, and so they are going to be at a massive loss if they cannot sell them at the proper price. That is something that you do not have with interest rate swaps. It's a contract, and the contract is predetermined from the start. I will pay you this amount of fixed, and I'm going to be getting the variable, and that's about it. No matter what happens on the external markets, that rule there remains, and somebody moving the order book up or down does not affect your interest rate swap in no way yes so uh, this is this is like another like very big differentiator 
like when I open an interest rate swap against the pool, it's me and the pool that engage in a contract and that's it. That's the law. And let's say that you come after that and you open another interest rate swap with, for $100 million. I don't care. That is not going to affect me in any way. Or you sell, you short the interest rates with $100 million. Again, it's not going to affect me because I'm already in a contract with the pool. So uh, we talked a lot about like the, the traders and how like interest rate swaps have lower risk for them that when you compare it to perpetuals. So what about the LPs? I mean, in your design, it's peer to pool. So basically the, the liquidity pool is the counterpart to every trade. So, I mean, it, it's the same for them, but how do you model like the risk and, and price the, the interest rate swaps and like calculate the spread basically could you walk us through that yeah sure and maybe this is a good time you know to bring up a little bit about you know some of the talent that we have on the ipor lab side uh so for this it requires a a lot of skill in, on the quantitative finance side so our quant team is led by uh, mao hernandez he's a phd computer scientist uh, who set up uh, you know one of the, the trading desk at SBI Bits. SBI is uh, one of the largest uh, Japanese retail brokerages, actually a Brazilian living in Tokyo, and he's leading the quant team. But we actually have two guys that have uh, over 20 years in fixed income as quants, uh, you know, that they have a, a, an entire toolkit um, experience, you know, to essentially, uh, you know, model risk. And we are actually just onboarding uh, who's now our fourth PhD on, on a team of 16. Uh, so we have this amazing kind of brain power, uh, but what that goes into is essentially, you know, creating a new DeFi primitive and this new DeFi primitive, its job is to manage risk for the liquidity provider. So looping it back, uh, essentially there is a bespoke AMM for the IPOR interest rate swaps uh, that's digging into this quant toolkit. And really the beauty of the engineering and the quant side is the trade-offs of risk management Uh, and ability to do it all on on uh, on chain. So uh, you know, I guess uh, you know the the engineers say, you know, if you can do the math on a calculator, it's probably cheap enough to do on chain. If you need a very large machine, then it will probably be prohibitively expensive. Uh, but if you want, uh, Ipor Labs has an entire quant library that sets the foundation for the AMM and the culmination of the AMM white paper. Uh, that actually prices the uh, automated automated market maker. And its goal is to actually manage risk on behalf of the liquidity providers. So just in brief, uh, you know, there's three really quant models that go into the AMM construction. And they're really optimized for volatility and model risk and uh, fair pricing of swaps. So if this, uh, what's the fair price of this swap, you know, let's say one month from now. And those three models are whole white, which is the traditional interest rate model. Uh, one is uh, jump diffusion, which actually rate, uh, models these outsized rate jumps that typically revert to the mean. And we borrowed that from actually modeling out Brazilian debt, uh, which has a very high, uh, high volatility. And the last one is Longstaff Schwartz, which is modeling for optionality. So that gives us the cancelable swap that kind of matches the, uh, let's say, the uh, The risk profile or the flexibility that DeFi participants, uh, you know, really want. 
so maybe that's a long introduction to the AMM's job is really to price pool risk neutral. So what does that look like for a liquidity provider? So liquidity providers, they will put a single asset and they have the single asset exposure and it's to the contracts written in that asset. And it's proportional. It's at a global state currently, at least in the uh, you know in the IPOR interest rate swap V1. So you might be a liquidity provider providing USDC, USDT, or Dai, and soon ETH, or it will be wrapped ETH. And this liquidity provider is essentially a service provider. They provide capital, and that capital is used to underwrite swaps. So that capital, while it sits there. Uh, the AMM essentially prices that risk and offers it to traders and traders can choose to take this risk. If a trader chooses to take, uh, sorry, to take this contract either to manage risk, to take an arbitrage trade or take a directional position. When the trader takes that contract, they pay a fee to open the contract. And this is one of the incomes of the liquidity providers. So liquidity providers are uh, receiving fees from contract opening. The other income for the uh, liquidity provider is uh, what we call SOAP, which is the sum of all payoffs or the net outcome of the contracts. And really the AMM is priced and modeled so that SOAP is pretty close to zero. So it should be fairly neutral. So, you know, in simple terms, the pool should be winning as often as it's losing. And, and why is that? So if the pool, if the AMM is really optimized for the pool to be winning a lot, uh, that means two things, and they're both quite negative in my opinion. One, it means that the traders are getting wrecked. If the traders are getting wrecked, they're probably not going to come back. And two, it means that the the spreads are not priced competitively. And if they're not priced competitively, you can have another protocol that's spun up that undercuts the price, and you'll have a lot of liquidity going there. So the the dynamics are to try to price the pool as close to risk neutral as possible. So this SOAP element actually should be maybe the least profitable part of the income for the LPs. And this is actually the only loss scenario. So there's not impermanent loss. A liquidity provider is not uh, you know, exposed to two different assets, for example. But the loss scenario is if there is a negative SOAP. And finally, the third income is money market yield. So the money market yield is, is just this. While the uh, while the um, stables are sitting idle in the pool, they're actually going out into Aave. They're going out to Compound. They're going out to the constituent, uh, you know, protocols where the IPO rates are coming from. And actually, the deposits or, or the collateral deposited by the traders is also going out. Uh, and all of that return is going back to the LPs. So you can consider it a leveraged money market yield. And so this is one of the designs of the protocol, for example, where this, let's say, uh, the collateral of the traders, uh, that money market yield is going back to the LPs, so that patches some of the income. So that's one way to not, for example, weight the AMM too much in favor of the LPs. It creates a more neutral market structure, you know, so that makes it more useful for traders. And so right now, the pools are yielding, I think, between about 15 and 20%. Uh, and we call this real yield uh, because it's sourced directly from actually actual economic activity that people are paying for. Uh, and none of this is, uh, you know, in uh, considering token incentives. Right. And so this 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 is, a, I think, a very high benchmark, you know, for the industry right now that's coming from crazily economic activity. 
And uh, you know, you can see that maybe a one and a half years of protocol design and implementation, focusing on actual uh, economic activity over over uh, let's say you know different uh, you know kind of uh, game theory uh, was a good design choice, right? But the whole the whole idea is that you know someone's paying for something. Uh, the LPs are service providers. Uh, the traders come in because they need some function, you know, whether it be hedging arbitrage or speculation, and that's how the system works together. So, I mean, that's a little bit about how the LPs uh, come in, and, you know, the risk is essentially defined by the AMM. So the current model is uh, optimized for volatility risk, and uh, for the V2, uh, we, uh, the PhD that we just brought in, uh, is uh, th their specific background is focusing on portfolio risk. So that will be pricing, not necessarily for, uh, you know, what we know as utilization, per, like utilization per leg, let's say in the Aave or the compound sense, but it's actually exposure, risk exposure of the pool. And so right now we're in the process of modeling that out and that will go into the V2 of the interest rate swaps. I think what you just described around the real yield, well, you know, in these markets, like I think that is where capital is and should flow. Um, it's also really interesting to see that even at the current utilization numbers, you know, which which are often like teens, maybe going into tweens, the yield is still super attractive for LPs. And uh, I've been LPing a little bit. And I think also because the way you guys are pricing, again, there should be that acknowledgement of, okay, well, if you're LPing, if the pool were losing money, it would do so over time. So it's also, you know, like, and, and Dimitar, maybe you can speak on this a little bit, but, you know, I, I know you're opinionated about maybe uh, liquidity providers who are counterparties to decentralized perps. They are similarly right, uh, facilitating the trades by taking the other side of a trade, but they're exposed to a different type of loss because it can be much more immediate in terms of the impact it can have. Um, is, is my understanding correct of that? Yeah, exactly. So for example, if, if we're, let's, let's, let's speak for example about a perpetual swap, which is like a peer to pool. What is the risk model of that perpetual swap? Well, basically, you are hoping that the trader is not going to be correct because like the pool is always a counterpart. So if the trader goes long and the price go the price goes up, the counterparty is losing. Yes. So and, and there is there is nothing there that is trying to somehow protect the liquidity provider. The liquidity provider is just sitting there and praying that the trader is going to be wrong. Yeah. And also, for example, if we're talking about like LPs in things like even take Uniswap, for example, yes, like a passive par participant LP in Uni uh, in Uni V2, you go there, you put some Ethereum and some USDC, and and then you are basically at the mercy of that X Y equals K uh, contract, which well, it, it leads to massive impermanent loss. And for for the longest period of time, people were uh, did not really know uh, like what impermanent loss is, for example, but like when you give them enough time after one year, you realize that, well, almost all of the retail that have been providing liquidity have suffered massive impermanent loss. Why is that? Well, because the volatility of those assets, when the volatility kicks in and an asset goes like two, three X uh, in a discrepancy from the other asset that is being provided, and then the 
the the losses from impermanent loss start to mount up to some pretty big numbers that cannot be covered by fees. Yeah, and here in like an, the AMM design, you as a liquidity provider, you are still a passive participant because nothing is required for, for you to do. Yes, like you deposit the money and you become an LP. But the, the AMM itself is not something stationary that sits there and and prices those swaps on, on, on some like basic formula. Yes, the AMM is constantly getting data. It's constantly getting what's its own exposure. What's the rate? What's the rate volatility? Yes, and and then tries to price that interest rate swap. Yes, so it's not, it's it's not really an how to say the AMM model that people know from Texas, but it's more like a request for quote. Like you go to a bank and you're like, I want to open this contract with you. Give me a quote. So what we managed to achieve though is to not take 15 minutes and somebody with a calculator to give you a quote. We managed to implement all of that math on top of a smart contract on Ethereum. And this was actually one of the most challenging things to, to achieve. Uh, like it took a very long time to take all of that complex math that goes into calculating the fair value of an interest rate swap and then try to convert this into something that can be written in solidity and calculated on chain uh, that and and then optimize for gas so this is like a, a very very big part of our work that that really stays hidden from from what people read in the documents for example yeah and and finally about the uh, about the profitability and the, and the risks like for example if you go to if you go to the if you go to our app right now and you go to the pools and you're going to see the the exchange price of the lp token you're going to see that the price of the price of the lp token which means the profitability of the pool always slowly grinds up why is that and this is because the money which is in the pool is continuously uh, getting uh, getting yields from the outside protocols which are other and compound because of the fees uh, which are accruing from people opening opening uh, contracts and then like even when there is like an event where the pool was not correct let's say and it loses on a on, on a swap usually what what happens is that this is being covered by by the fees themselves and by the other side of the pool yes because if you can you lose on one leg but you're winning on the other leg yes so and let's say that if you if you provide a liquidity as a as an LP and the exposure, let's say that all of the traders right now are long, yes, and you are an LP, which means that you are short, and let's say that the rates go up three times, you are not going to lose like the money that you have deposited in a day or in a week. It's going to take weeks for that PL to accumulate, yes. So um yeah, I, yeah. So, I, I so hope it, that it, this it. It, it, it's it's a great explanation. And again, you know, it's kind of okay. So you've got the volatility, but really, to be losing money, you need that volatility over an extended period of time. Um, and and I I think that's a, a great mental model, as well as your description of you guys basically uh, created a, a mathematical model, embedded that in a smart contract that does the equivalent of writing a quote, uh, which is uh, which which is also good for people to understand. Um, the other thing, I mean, 
what you said there, we actually didn't create anything. So this is one thing, uh, you know, very interesting. We're actually just taking the best and fundamentals of traditional finance. We're taking the best of DeFi and we're mashing them together, right? So we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just making the sensible design trade-offs that match from both sides. We're taking very strong fundamentals, you know, that you don't actually have to prove that, are, that have been proven, you know, over in different scientific papers, you know, over years of, of uh, you know, banking and finance. And so, yes, we're creating, I mean, the, the big thing is like mashing all this together, mashing, uh, you know, like a, adapting, a, adapting an index, you know, for decentralized governance and, you know, uh, maximizing for, for gas costs while allowing for the flexibility for it to live on chain and across multiple chains. Uh, creating an instrument where you can have peer to pool, rather, you know, uh, interest rate swaps are largely not available to retails. They're only between financial institutions. And also it's really hard to bootstrap uh, a market, you know, with, so, you know, the peer to pool model works very well when you have one passive participant and one active participant. And so all of these things already exist and we are just looking at how we can adapt them and fit them and model them best for DeFi while providing the functions that traditional finance has. Yeah, so you basically took tested models from TradFi and you backtested them in DeFi and that's how you came up with an, let's call it AMM. I think it's a little bit different, but let's call it AMM. And you basically take external input and then you like, calculate the spreads and that's how you quantify the risk. Um, so you did all this work. Uh, who's the user? Like who, who do you think should be the traders and the LPs? I mean, I, I can, I can speak like from the, from the trader side. Yes. And from the trader side, I, I believe that the, the first people that, that are going to start like power using interest rate swaps are those people that are that are looking for arbitrage opportunities in, in DeFi. Like one of the specifics about, about DeFi, which makes it so interesting is that at any point in time, between all of those like thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of smart contracts, which are on top of Ethereum, there is free money constantly there. There are constantly discrepancies, whether this is going to be in spot prices, whether this is going to be in credit markets, whether this is going to be in some perps or futures. And the people which are like the most, you know, the best searchers are going to go there. They're going to find those opportunities and they're going to find money uh, and they're going to be making money. And and now I think we're at a, we're at a point where you know, it's very difficult to, to actually reliably get, get yield from stable coins. Yes. So, uh, I mean, because the rates are too small, but at the same time, there's still, there still continue to be pretty big discrepancies between the different credit markets. So let's say you can, you can borrow a coin, which is, which, which is very cheap to borrow from some protocol. And then you can, exchange that you can exchange that coin to another stable coin and you can lend it out somewhere where it, where it's more expensive and this is effectively free money and until now this was hard to do because you basically did not have the instruments to ensure this art is going to happen because like again if we compare it to us to a, to a spot art 
A spot ARP is like an atomic transaction. Yes, you buy on one side and you sell on the other side and you have locked the profits and all of this happens in, in basically in one block. Yes, and that's it. And then you are just looking for the other opportunity. But if when it comes to interest rates, you need to be able to take that opportunity to take that risk discrepancy between those rates for a prolonged period of time. Yes, in order to capture the true opportunity of, of that arbitrage, which means that you need to have the ability to lock the rates at which you are borrowing, yes, and at which you are uh, lending. And then for first like speculators, I would guess people which are tracking different metrics and people expecting that, for example, rates are going to go up or going to go down because of XXX uh, news or anticipations or, or protocols that came live. And, and then people that are going to be uh, hedging their, their current portfolios. Yes, we are still talking about like multiple billions of stable coins uh, being planned and borrowed at Aave and Compound alone. And then there are multiple other fixed rate protocols that are also coming live uh, and, and starting to pick, pick up traction. Yes, so this market is only going to grow here. And I think that we are already past that point in DeFi where you know DeFi was about fruit coins and 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 like various other trash and ponzi nomics yes uh if we if we want DeFi to be to be a thing we need to start building real stuff and there's some some obvious uh, users right like you've got the DAOs with the idle capital um you, you've got your retail your whales um, I think all the market makers are already capturing a lot of these arbitrage and basis spreads, but they are just missing instruments like the ones that you're building. And uh, I, I think there's just an awareness challenge that needs to be solved. Um, but but the existence of these products too, I think is going to accelerate the coming in of sophisticated players into crypto and DeFi, uh, especially when the backbones to these things you know, knowing how you guys operate at the moment is like, yeah, you, you prioritize decentralization and those things take time to get there. But once you really know that you're trusting uh, not some person with a calculator, but a smart contract, you know, it, it also it adds transparency, trustability, trustlessness, um, which all get me very excited, too. Um, one thing I think we should touch on is uh, so that the markets by themselves are isolated, right? So you mentioned you have USDC, USDT, DAI, and soon Ethereum. And so basically it means the LP with that asset is the counterparty to traders of that asset. That index is pricing at the moment Aave and Compound, but it could have others, right? And then um, that is the case and the index so differs per different asset. And I think within that, right, like Darren, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of expand on this. Um, it, it means that if you want the index to become like this public good, right, like how are you thinking about asset inclusion or which money markets you add or which change you go to? Yeah, so I mean, this, uh, uh, you know, kind of the isolated markets, it would be more for like an LP consideration, right? So actually, uh, if you look at what's happening on the IPOR, Liquidity pools, uh, USDT right now is the most profitable. Uh, why? Because uh, you know it has actually the greatest volatility, which means that the AMM is tuning for that volatility. 
which prices the spreads higher, which means that you know actually typically the soap is is uh, you know it's a much larger on USDT. But your risk is uh, is isolated to that pool, and USDT essentially functions as its own uh, you know own currency. So the stable coins. The reason that they have different indices is because they actually effectively have different, uh, you know, different interest rate behavior, and that's quite fascinating. So, um, you know, a lot of people are talking about delta neutral, but uh, you know, like beta neutral strategies are, you know, you you're looking for price outliers be, between the same, like similarly priced instruments, right? So, it depends on how you, uh, you know, uh, say define. Uh, you know, the stablecoin risk, but if you say USDT is to USDC is to die, then you're looking at uh, arbitraging, you know, the, uh, the, the outliers between these different prices. Uh, okay, and so let's talk about, you know, kind of the governance behind, uh, between that, you know, uh, or behind that. So we, we touched a little bit before about, you know, the future of the indices, you know, what, what different money markets will be included what new, um, let's say, stable coins will be will have an index spun up, and so the question is, you know, how how does this governance, uh, you know, how does it evolve over time? And that's an interesting theoretical question. So if we go back to the first questions that you know the Ipor Labs team was asking about the 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 index itself, we're saying, okay, so. Really, the index is, it's not a great way to cover basis risk. Uh, you know, the basis risk is defined as, you know, let's say the difference between the interest rate movement on a single uh, a single market versus the index because it's a composite index. So you might want to use something. So like, for example, uh, you know, one of the other interest rate protocols, uh, Volts, you know, it does, uh, you know, per, you know, it has a, it has a market for compound and it has a market for Aave. So, you know, one of the questions and trade-offs was, do we design an index that covers, you know, single market versus the, the macro view? And we went with the macro, and, you know, essentially the IPOR rate is long DeFi credit markets. It's not long Ethereum, it's not long Aave, it's not long Compound. It's a bet on the DeFi credit markets as a whole, you know, and maybe there are better models that come up and they, they uh, you know, swallow a lot of that liquidity. And from a volume weighting component, then they are, you know, much, um, you know, they, they have a much bigger pull on the index itself, right? Uh, the index, from a transparency perspective, you know, it allows actually people to arbitrage, uh, you know, different markets, you know, against the index. And that arbitrage actually ends up closing these inefficiencies, which means that all rates in the future should uh, diverge to the IPOR. So the IPOR actually doesn't set the markets, that actually reflects the markets. And if there are outliers, that creates opportunities. If there are outliers, you have this transparent index that says, you know, that's the benchmark says above or below, and that creates an arbitrage opportunity. The arbitrage opportunity, you know, it, it brings the markets much more in alignment. So, you know, this is kind of a fascinating function that both the derivatives and the index should have on the market. Right. Okay. So um, it strikes me then that the community is going to want to care about which assets are included, right? Like, okay, so hypothesizing if you're Frax, well, hey, maybe you want a market for that to be created. And it means you're advocating at the money markets, means you might want some control of IPOR governance, however you do that. Um, and 
at the same time, I, I think too, for the money markets themselves, they may want to get included. Um, one thing the audience may want to understand though is, okay, so right now you are on ETH mainnet. So how are you thinking about other chains and when would, would, would you decide to go somewhere or not? Like, is there a particular hurdle you guys are interested in? Yeah, well, okay. So we, we, we started from a protocol construction very conservatively. For example, you know, the, the none, nothing goes across the bridge. Everything is built on Ethereum, in Ethereum for the V1. Uh, why? Because uh, you want to build something that's a backbone. That's not some uh, you know speculative thing that can get hacked in a moment and poof, it's gone, right? But that doesn't mean that this can't go cross chain, uh, and that is actually a big question. So if you look at, you know, we we actually had a very strong criteria for the investors, and you know, this round was led by uh, the last round was led by Arrington, and Arrington's a perfect example of governance, right? So Arrington has a lot of different money market plays and stablecoin plays across the number of chains. So from their perspective, you know, maybe it's very strong in terms of governance, you know, how to actually, you know, uh, get uh, an index spun up or how to include a protocol, uh, you know, into the IPOR index, uh, which is this transparent, you know, benchmark rate. And so that could be a good kind of prototype for, you know, what you were saying about different protocols trying to acquire tokens or different stable coins trying to, uh, you know, uh, you know, essentially have some say in the future governance of the index. And, you know, maybe I'll break this down into like kind of three different, uh, you know, use cases and categories for the token. So one, uh, you know, about the token is this governance over the future of the index, the inclusion you know, the, the, the um, even reweighting of the index, how does the index go cross chain? Uh, already it's, it has kind of a backend and uh, on-chain construction that allows not only for gas optimization, but to be able to ingest rates from different chains and also print rates to multiple chains. If we go back to the original uh, conversation about external contracts, external smart contracts, uh, external DeFi protocols, referencing the rates, well, there's this entire, let's say, chain link style ecosystem that you can have around keeping the IPOR both pure and keeping it synced and printed, you know, across multiple chains. So there's another value of the IPOR index. And finally, one thing that we will just uh, do a hat tip to, and actually is the, uh, uh, you know, Demeter is the, is the, it, it's his uh, brainchild is the tokenomics around the DEX. So the first thing is, you know, there's a, you know, most people uh, are very familiar, let's say, with V-Curve or something like BadgerDAO, which it takes shades from both of those. Uh, I won't go too much into it now, uh, not to spoil anything, but, you know, most people are looking at, you know, uh, a, a token um, in terms of, uh, you know, let's say, a boosted yield from being a service provider. So that's fairly well known in DeFi right now. But the other is a decentralized governance around the future of the benchmark or the de facto risk-free rate in DeFi, and also you know the entire economy around this very important data point that could power you know the future of the DeFi credit markets. Let's say that's much harder to quantify, but from a qualitative perspective, you know it has uh, you know huge precedence. You know uh, in you know if we look back to the LIBOR. It's not that it was, um, you know, that it was manipulated, for example, by traders, that was a given. The issue was actually to unwind the instruments that were pegged to it. And that gives, uh, you know, that shows that this, 
you know benchmark rate is very strong and that uh, that gives you a you know a good idea that if you have these external contract calls you know coming to this and if you are able to recreate this hundreds of trillions of uh, you know dollars worth of deals that are pegged to this on-chain benchmark rate there's certainly some value around that and so this is uh, you know kind of some interesting things to keep in mind that if we say you know from some very near term uh, the functioning of uh, of a DEX is quite interesting. Some very long term are the governance and the to uh, and the economy actually around this very on important on chain uh, data point. Yeah, that, that's a perfect segue. So you already hinted on like uh, the roadmap where when it comes to the IPR index and governance. Um, we have to wrap it up slowly. So um, first of all, let's say the protocol is live right now. So you can LP, you can trade. Um, what have you planned for, for the product, the interest rate swap, and maybe also for business development and partnerships? Uh, what's the roadmap there? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll, I'll go here. So like, and, and it comes a little bit into like what DeFi is, is, is doing right now, where you know, almost every protocol that that goes out there, like whether it's a DEX, whether it's a whether it's a credit market a protocol, they are going to go with like the try and, tried and true method of like I'm going to copy paste, like let's say I have an interest rate curve, or I'm going to copy paste Uniswap XYK uh, AMM design, and then I'm going to attract my own. Uh, liquidity providers, and then I'm going to attract my users, and everything that happens inside my protocol is just going to be based on my in vacuum thing. Yes, like I build it, and like whether what the rates are on my protocol, well, the rates on my protocol are dictated by the people that are using my protocol. Five people, seven people, they can be completely not relevant uh, to to what actually happens in the in the in the DeFi market. Yes. I guess with spot exchanges, it's a little bit difficult because like it can instantly be arbitraged. But specifically for like fixed rate protocols, tranches, like anything that has to do with interest rates, everybody are building something in a vacuum and and the and the dynamics do not really reflect the rest of the the rest of the credit market. So like while we are quite good technically with the composability, like protocols being able to speak to each other and for for somebody to be able to route a transaction via multiple protocols to complete like to 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 basically design very complex uh structured products uh we are not really good in DeFi with like unifying ourselves uh, around like what are we going to be using in order to build stuff yes so i would much rather see like when you are building a new credit market you like instead of just copy pasting again the, the Aave formula, well, Aave and Compound are your ripple markets. Basically, Don't, this is like your your de facto overnight rate that that we have right now in in DeFi. Use that and then try to optimize for pricing. They are already optimizing for for liquidity. You know, their 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 interest rate curve is already optimized for liquidity. You are not going to do a better job than them. If you want to build a credit market which is going to compete with Aave or Compound, you need to do something better. 
yeah and if you if you copy if you copy the the fundamental design which is the interest rate you're going to fail you're not going to achieve anything yeah so and and for this to happen we really need something on top we which that we have a consensus about and we start building on top of that and and this is this is something that after multiple talks with many founders in the in the industry we actually share the same frustration of like oh everybody wants to build their own own little like world garden and and try to and try to create some economy there so this is where i really see the the, the future the future of ipor of like speaking with more projects speaking with more protocols and build real defi yeah um basically that's my point love it i think uh that's a great vision and uh so for all the builders listening i think they can reach out to you guys uh, we will make sure to list your contact details uh in the descriptions um thanks so much for this incredible conversation um guys you uh you, you're you're great conversationalists and know your stuff um i hope we were able to clarify some of the more complex concepts uh such as interest rate derivatives and so forth um is there anywhere in particular you want to send people or something you would like to have them do darren yeah join join the discord uh visit ipor.io you can see the app there app.ipor.io uh we have a huge uh actually I, one of the uh, maybe one of the most comprehensive uh, git books uh, in the industry uh, we have an entire quant library that's on notion if you're interested in learning about you know the, the quant models behind the ipor design uh, you can follow the Twitter account, which always has the relevant information. Of course, you can find all these links on ipor.io. And in Discord, you know, we have a weekly hangout where you can come chat, hang, uh, hang out with the ipor labs team, uh, you know, talk about the latest happenings in DeFi, uh, in the macro, and talk about the inner workings of the ipor protocol, get the latest updates. Uh, we're going to start doing some, you know, Twitter, uh, tw uh, what is it called? Twitter Hangout? Yeah. Okay. Spaces. And Twitter Spaces. Twitter Spaces. So, uh, yeah, come join us, uh, especially in the Discord, and uh, come chat with the, you know, the different community members, and we're looking forward to it. Terrific. Thank you, guys.